So there were four elements in hip hop. And the fifth element, I created the fifth element. I'm a little different than most artists because I created what I am. If you see somebody DJ, somebody started that. If you see somebody MC on the mic, DJ Hollywood was one of the guys that started that. And then he put on there, say ho. So when you hear in crowd participation, that was the element that he put into play. You got the break dancer. You got the graffiti artist. So this fifth element did not exist. I created the fifth element, but not knowing I was creating it as I was going along. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. Hey everyone, this is Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. Just when I thought I knew the entire Dougie Fresh story, when he sat down with Nas and I, he blew our minds. He explained to us how the creation of the human beatbox was a direct result of school budget cuts. He took us back to his legendary nights at Harlem World, to making history with Biz Marquee and Slick Rick, and how he helped Kane, Public Enemy, Puff, and B.I.G. become better performers, too. We got so many gems. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Claiming the title, the world's greatest entertainer, is not to be taken lightly. When that type of spotlight is put on you, audiences expect the best. Dougie Fresh is an artist who lives up to the hype. The man could do it all. If the rhyming don't get you, the beatbox and his signature stage moves will. Dougie Fresh is truly hip-hop in its truest form. The Human Beatbox record. This is when I first heard you. You're just having fun record. This is back in the 80s. And immediately we were talking about your sound. I called it the future. You sounded way more put together than a lot of the records that were out at the time. It was like a change in other times when you came out. Mm -hmm. And we trying to do the beatbox like you. I'm trying to get (laughs) that down. I still try to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They said he's doing it with his teeth. I said, he's not grinding his teeth to make that sound, to this day, y'all. How? Could you break it down? Like, how? How are you doing it? Man, well, I honestly really don't know as much as I kind of just do it. It's magic. It's science. Yeah, it's just a crazy situation. But I'll tell you this when I did just having fun. See, I did just having fun because I had to put something in place. Because at the time, just being 100% real, I introduced the beatbox in 82. Like, I'm on flyers with Flash. I'm on flyers with Funky 4. I'm on flyers with the Cold Crush and Love Bug. But that was a different direction. I was bringing it from an authentic place. And then what happened 
is that it started to catch fire in the street. Like you heard and other kids heard about it in the street. So when they heard about it, like I was known before I made records because that's how you had to, to build your name. You had to get mm-hmm. your name known before records. And then the records just take you to another level. Fat Boys teamed up with a much bigger promotional team. It was Curtis Blow. And even though Curtis Blow knew I was the guy who created it, it was still just business. He went in there and he was hired to produce a song for him. You know, in 83, I did the beatbox for Curtis Blow because he didn't have a DJ at Harlem Week. And I was walking down the street and he knew who I was and he knew that he needed something because Harlem Week, they wasn't even ready for DJs. They were still using bands because Harlem Week what? never had a hip-hop artist before. Wow. So Curtis Blow needed somebody. I was walking down the street, but real, just walking down the street. Headed to Harlem Week? You know what Harlem yeah. Week yeah, is, right? Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. biggest. Big street Everybody's party. out there. Yep. Right. So I'm out there, too. And I'm just doing block parties and stuff like that. But then I'm walking down the street. They say, yo, Kurt, there goes Dougie. That's Dougie Fresh. He said, yo, Dougie, can you do the beat? I was like, what? Can I what? You <laughs> Curtis Blow. Of course I can. And I got on, and that was the first time that I did it in front of maybe 10, 15,000 people that was outside in front of the state office building. But I'm explaining that to say that he knew I created it, but mm. he also had a contract to produce the Fat Boys. So when he was producing them, he had to deal with what was business. So when I did Just Having Fun, I went into the studio and I was learning how to use it because I'm one of the only artists out right now that was on Enjoy Records. Right. You remember Enjoy Records with the little red label? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like the Treacherous Three was on Enjoy Records. Funky Four was on Enjoy Records. Grandmaster Flash and the First Five was on Enjoy Records. So I was on that label. I was on Streetwise. I'm probably the only guy out here that was on at least nine labels. Nine labels. Crazy. I want to take it back, Doug. To have this opportunity to sit with great people and pick their brain is everything to us. And to have you here... I got to know, was you born in Harlem? How did it start? Well, what happened with me is that my family's from Barbados and from Trinidad. So I was taken back and forth between those two places coming up. Mm -hmm. I found out a lot of this later on why I had to move around so much. But it was back in the days, and especially in West Indian families, when you have a child out of wedlock and when you're not set up correctly and the family and the community knows you try to hide things and Mm. disconnect and disappear. So I was moved around. I was born in Harlem. Out of my brothers and sisters, I'm the only one with that kind of a circumstance. So until like, I'd say maybe three years ago, I found out who was my biological father. Mm. You know how these situations go when you're growing up. They're there for a certain period of time and then your mother and them break up and then you got to go on, do your own thing. And then later on, you reconnect and then you start remembering the things that they did for you throughout the journey. Doug, you moved around a lot and 
being somebody that has to kind of be transient and readapt over and over again. Do you think that that's what pushed you into being a performer? Well, you know, the uh, the entertainment part, you know, you grow up in Harlem and Harlem is entertainment all day long. You got the Apollo, you had Celebrity Club, you had the Autobahn, you had all of these different places around you. So I grew up at a place and I learned from the school called Harlem World. There was a real club called Harlem World and it was like the mecca of hip hop at the time. It wasn't designed for that, but they had a crew in there called the Harlem World Crew. So the way that I came up was a little different than most people because, you know, I had to take flyers and give the flyers out because to help to promote whatever the event was on. So in 1981, I was on a flyer with me, Master Don and the Deaf Committee and Busy B. Starsky and Cool DJ AJ. And they spelled my name wrong on there. They spelled Doe D. And I had to go with it. I had to go with it. You know how <laughs> somebody spells your name? But you still got to go. He was like this. Do you want to be on this show or not? All right, like, man. I just started giving out them flyers like, yo, I'm Doe D tonight. I'm going to be Doe D tonight. I'm getting on. I'm going to be on. I'm going to be this dude. So you you learn how to do that. And then you go to the different schools. And when you give it to the students, they be looking at the flyer. And it was so disrespectful. They'll throw the flyer away in front of your face like, yeah, ah, whatever. And, you know, when you leave in school, that was it. But you was trying to get everybody to come to this party. So I learned that style. And a lot of people took my flyers and some of them didn't want to take them. So I had a stack of flyers. So I said, what I'm going to do is write a rhyme on the back of every one of these flyers and an idea on every one of these flyers. And I'm going to make sure that they remember and know who I am. Because even though they didn't take the flyer now, they will take the flyer later. So that was the concept of thought that I put into process. Instead of looking at it as feeling down about it, I used it to motivate me to take me to another level. And I just kept on doing that. And then I learned a technique that doesn't exist no more because I learned as a performer first. Mm. You understand? See, in hip hop, most people learn as like going in the studio, you're making a record, you're rapping, you do your thing in the studio. I learned how to perform first because it was strictly about skills. So it wasn't really about the record as much as it was about being a performer and then you make a record. Right. See, hip-hop was a different dynamic. That's why when you hear groups like the Cold Crush Brothers and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Treacherous Three, well, Treacherous Three came in on, on the rhyming side with the records and they were probably doing things in the schools, but Flash, Cold Crush, Busy B, Hollywood, Love Bug, it wasn't about no records. It was about skills. Cut that zero. When that video came out, mm-hmm. I was a teenager and right. I was going through dating and yeah. all of that, you know, and cut that zero. I said, my man Doug said, cut that zero. <laughs> Leave that dude alone. Why are you with him? I'm coming up. He's getting money. He's the man, but he's on his way out. I could tell. I'm the new dude. Cut that zero. Get with me. So I'm you out. used his his, his song, spit his, his spit, then, yeah. to bag something. And 
you you helped the game. You helped us along the way. Nah, I appreciate it. B Street is probably my favorite movie. Number one, over Godfather, over <laughs> Color Purple, over mm-hmm. everything. So B Street is the first time I saw you, man. And right. everybody saw the movie before me. And they came on, we saw Dougie Fresh. We saw Dougie Fresh. What do he look like? Yo, he got these big ass lips. He got these, because they thinking, how does he make these sounds? They was adding story. It was a myth. They was just throwing. So I'm thinking I'm going to see this guy with his big, gigantic lips to make music. And it was like, you was just chilling. You was a regular looking guy. I was like, nah, he's just a regular, cool looking guy. There's no extra stuff to make him make this sound. He just knows how to do it. And you perform at the Treacherous Three. You was a mythical right, figure, right. bro. When I saw you just dancing in the first scene in the club, play that beat. And what you playing for me before, you know, the little breakdance thing wow. started, you wow. was just bopping your head and chilling. And then you had the scene, which was one of the most iconic music scenes in a movie mm-hmm. with the Treacherous Three, uh, L.A. Sunshine. But yeah. Kumo D. Special K. Special K. Did you know those guys in Harlem? Did you ever see them like how you bumped into Curtis Blow? Did you ever see them in the streets of Harlem? Absolutely. Before that movie, before y'all got together? Great, great, great question. I'm going to give you two pieces behind the Beach Street situation. Number one was Harry Belafonte picked me specifically to be in it. He was trying to figure out how do I get this guy in it? Because originally Run DMC was supposed to be in Beach Street. No way, Doug. Yes, sir. But this is a Bronx movie. Right. They're from Queens. Right. But it was Russell, it was D, and it was Run, and they all went to see Harry Belafonte at the same time I went in there. And then we got into this elevator and we started to kind of freestyle. And because D knew about me rhyming, because he went to Rice High School, and he also knew, because I took a few MC contests in Queens, I want a little paper out there and some trophies before <laughs> I ever made records, right? <laughs> and they chased me. And in Queens, they chased me to the train station. <laughs> hop on the train. Let me tell you something, B. Queens is nothing sweet. Ain't nothing sweet about Queens. So tell I just want to put that out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Ain't nothing sweet about Queens. But he still came so, through. <laughs> yo, I barely made it. I, I got on the walls. I had to run across the tracks. They wanted the trophy, they wanted the paper, and they wanted me to know you ain't coming to Queens and just smashing us out and taking <laughs> this money and this trophy and just leaving without Amazing. giving no tip. Nah. So when I got on the train and I made it home, I was like, man. But with Beach Street, I knew Kumo D, L.A. Sunshine, and Special K because Enjoy Records was on 125th Street and the record shop was there. It was Bobby Robinson's record shop. Bobby Robinson is the guy who owned Enjoy Records. And he owned a record store too. And he owned a record store too. And a lot of artists from the early days were signed to Bobby Robinson's record label. Was he black? Yeah, he's black. Black business owner. Come on, man. Talk about it. You know, if you look at The Godfather of Harlem, they do a piece on him and they talk about Bobby Robinson in it. I went there and I was studying how to get a record. I was like, this is where Bobby Robinson is. I see Treacherous 3 coming here all the time. So they heard about me and they seen me doing block parties and the word was just traveling. There was no internet, no social media. It was word of mouth that, yo, did you see that dude do that thing that nobody's doing? 
So when Run DMC pulled out because they felt the movie didn't deal with them as a group as much as Russell wanted them to, then Treacherous 3 wrote this Christmas piece because Harry Belafonte wanted them to do a special Christmas piece. I was going to do my own piece, but then they changed it. And they said, we want y'all to look funny. And the guy, Lester Wilson, the great choreographer, put his glasses on me. He took my hair, did like this, threw the hat on backwards, made Mo look crazy with the Christmas hat. It was supposed to be a fun, laughable, enjoyable scene. So when I did it, you know, I wanted it to be fly, but I also felt like I'm in a movie. I'm in Beach Street. And Beach Street did drop, I think, before Fat Boys or around the same time. Beach Street came out. We shot it in 83, and it came out in 84. Wow. The greatest, Doug. It's still a movie I watch at least three times a year. My kids (laughs) seen it. My friends watch it. I mean, it's just one of those movies we snuck into the movie theater twice to see it. We paid the third time. We felt so bad. We paid. I love it. I saw that movie three days in a row. I saw you and the show comes. I said, this doesn't make sense. He could do the beatbox. He could rap. He makes dope records. Now there's the show, which is the craziest record to this day. Yeah. To this day. People still can't make records like this. Completely timeless, yeah. And also, you're introducing us, you're sharing your spotlight and your time with somebody deserving of that. Right. Which is Mr. Ricky Walters. And you introduce the world to Slick Rick, an English accent speaking Bronx dude who went to school in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and hung out in Harlem. Doug, who are you? (laughs) You know, the story with Rick is crazy, man. The way all of the pieces lined up was unbelievable, man. Between me meeting Rick, everywhere I would go, Nas, Rick was on me in a way that I just could not shake him. Like, if I'm in the Bronx performing at Skate Fever, Rick is right there like this. Yo, I'm nice. I'm nice. I'm telling you, I'm nice. And I turn around, I'd be like, yo, I got to hear you. You know, you may have one rhyme that's good, but, you know, nice is different than one rhyme. Right. We started to connect because the first time we hooked up was at this place called the Cadet Club. And me and Tito from the Fearless Four was hanging out. And we went up there and we got on. And we couldn't get in the contest because Tito was professional. And they considered me professional because of the level of shows that I was doing. So Rick got on with a dude named June Love and another dude named Donald D at the time. So all three of them was in the contest. So I'm sitting there, Tito, the girls, everything we got on, the place is on fire. We tore the joint down. People are saying we should win, we should win, but we can't get in it. So the Cold Crush is in it, and Rick and his guys is in it. So June Love is the originator of the style that you hear Greg Nice rhyming. Hmm. Like oh, it's wow. like a fairy tale. Okay. was a great big, you know, that style, yeah. the, the way the style flow. Huh. That was June Love. Now, Greg was going to do the beatbox for June Love, but June Love got murdered. Oh. And when he got murdered, then that's when Greg Nice basically took the style 
and cultivated it and he made it his own. And then that was the introduction of that style. That style originated with him. Wow. So now Rick got on. He was rhyming. And I was looking at him. I said, yo, that dude there's nice, man. I said, yo, he's funny too. He's funny. And then Tito wasn't paying attention to it. And then the other guy, Donald D, got on. He was from, I said, he's nice too. Because I've always paid attention to an artist, whether they're at the top or the bottom. I listen and I pay attention. And that's a jewel. Most of the time you get caught up in the perception of the artist that you miss all of the diamonds. Hmm. So I was like, this dude is nice. So after Rick seen me and then I went downtown and after he went downtown, he kept coming to all my parties and shows. Then one day I seen him. I said, yo, man, come to the house. Let me hear how nice you are, man. I brought him over to Will's house. And that's the first time he opened up on Lottie Dottie. He couldn't even finish it because we was crying so badly through the whole rhyme. Like, I mean. What do you mean, crying? Meaning like he was so funny. Yeah. Like, see, you see Rick is nice. Rick is hilarious, bro. <laughs> I'm talking about on the joking side. Back then, he would make you, like, stop, Rick. You got to walk away from him because <laughs> he's going to keep the joke just going and going. He was one wow. of them dudes. Yeah. So I enjoyed him so much. And then he was mad because he could never win the MC contest because they would be jerking him. Because that contest, they took it from him and he didn't win. So he said, look, man, yo, we need to do these contests, man. Just let me do one contest with you so we can get this money. So I got in the contest with him. I said, look, I'm going to do the beatbox, and I want you to say that rhyme that I like right there. I'm going to change the beat. I'm going to flip it this way. I'm going to come in. And I said, I'm going to say parts of the rhyme. I said, I don't want to say the rhyme. I want you to say it, but I want to accent what you say. I want to fill in the gaps oh, like man. Dilly. Ali, he said, yo, let's do it. When we did it, game over. Explosion. Game over. So we took that contest. Then we took another contest. This is how crazy he is. When the show came out, he said, yo, I know the record came out and I know the record's on fire. But yo, but there's a rap contest up in the Bronx, right? <laughs> he said, it's 800. He said, yo, I want that 800. I was like, this, I was like, all right, let's go get the 800. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I went up there with him nice when I got him in there. I turned around and started to, like, he felt like now he got me. He got he got his man with him that. You're unstoppable. He knew it wasn't no way we was going to lose. Mm. So afterwards, he would win. And after he won the contest, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, you see what y'all used to do to me? You see what y'all used to do to me? <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. incredible. Crazy, right? Come on, you cut that zero. Get with this hero. Just say yes, I don't want to hear no no's. Cause that's not the way it goes. And I'll take a you to every get fresh show. I'll greet you like you supposed to be greeted. Treat you like you supposed to be treated. Hold you tight when I know that you need it. And I would never, ever act conceited. Even if I drove a brand new car and ate high price food like caviar. Never change my name or put you through those love sick games. Big Daddy Kane and KRS One. I yeah. would love to know 
what you thought about that versus because to me, I'm watching the gods and you are the god. What did you think about your brothers up there? Honest opinion. My honest opinion was I thought that each one of them carried a different technique and they both showed and proved their technique and their skill. Each one of them brought what they brought to the table. And the other thing in explaining it, because that's a very complicated question, but just giving you a simple answer, Kane showed breath control and he showed that he had the ability to do it in his style and in his way. And I appreciated that. And then he freestyled, meaning like freestyle is not off the top of the head. It became off the top of the head. Freestyle was you have rhymes written originally that you never said on record. So those mm-hmm. are rhymes that are freestyle. Then Thank freestyle you. became rhyming off the top of the head. I see a car. Uh, I took my girl to the ball. Yo, you know, you're going to grow up <laughs> one day and be a star, you know, and all of that. Uh, that became uh, a whole nother thing which that technique was created. And originally it came out of Stevie D from the Force MCs. So he used to rhyme off the top of the head at Harlem World like that before anybody did that. Before they became the Force MDs. Before they became the Force MDs, they were Mm. the Force MCs. And it was Mercury and Stevie D and DJ Dr. Rock. Stevie D used to rhyme off the top of his head and pick things off of people in the audience and things like that to get an automatic response. So we're talking about two different techniques. You're talking about Kane. He's rhyming and he's using a technique of the classic freestyle, which the classic freestyle is some say who that, cat run through that, ass high do that. Now, I'm rhyming like that, and you may not know that rhyme from a record, but I got rhymes in my arsenal. You got rhymes in your arsenal. You know, any real MC always got rhymes that they never really said on record, but they got them. So Kane has rhymes like that. Garris one use more of the technique where he's going to sit up there and he's going to put things together in front of you. He's going to paint the picture freestyle in front of you because that is part of another technique that he learned. But KRS-One is also the guy that musically and Kane musically are two different styles. They approach things two different ways. KRS-One's style is more aggressive, more testosterone, more in your face, more banging you like this. Kane's style is more technical. Hmm. He has a more technical style where his style is based on precision and just the way that the rhymes are dropped and the flows and the cadence, it's a whole different technique. And then you got yeah. KRS-One, his presence is big. His music is right. big. His sound is big. His approach is big. So right. it's kind of like saying, do I like an orange or do I like an apple? Right. They're both fruit. You can only say what you like best, but you can't really say what is best. Right. Only based on your own personal opinion. But one could say that some skills are better suited to battle than others, correct? Well, it depends on what we call in a battle. Versus uh-huh. battle is a battle of records. Yeah. It's not a battle of skill. Skill and records are two different things. I'll take you back to Harlem World. Harlem World originated based on skills. Skills, not records. See, if you had a record out, 
you'll get a bigger audience than me because your record was promoted more than me, marketed more than me. And then you get on stage and you perform it and everybody know your song and they singing along. Mm -hmm. Now snatch that record from that guy and put him on with that guy who don't have a record, but his skills are crazy. Mm. Now you got a different situation going on. The record is the only thing that people can gauge it on now in regards to versus because this is what we know. These are the records that you know. But if it's like, let's say we're going to do a versus and nobody going to do no records. We're just going to do skills. I'm hypothetically speaking, I know it can never happen, but I'm just saying we're going to just show skills. You'll see a different dimension of the artist because they don't have the records to lean on. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But what was your thoughts on Kane and KRS-One? I couldn't believe it was happening. I looked at these guys as... <laughs> I thought I was as lucky to be alive. Just going song for song, I couldn't believe it. So Kane, to me, always been like the number one. Him and Rakim, for me, have been the number one and two. Sometimes Kane's number one, sometimes Rakim's number one, but they were my one and two. So with KRS, he's like a number one to me too, but... To me, he wasn't a lyrical MC. Like, these guys were sorcerers. These guys, Rakim and Kane, were like the king's sorcerer of wordplay. And KRS was just the great MC. So to me, he wasn't on their level. But his records, the records he put out, the albums he put out, his career, the knowledge he gave to the world and how much he stands for black history, that makes him up there with Sojourner Truth and Marcus Garvey and them dudes. He's like something else. So right. you can't take nothing from him. I, I say all that to say, I can't judge it. I can't really judge it. I just was, I was happy to see it go down. Why you can't judge it? Because KRS had more records coming out longer. And Kane's record, Enough Respect Do, I never liked Enough Respect Do. So when he did Enough Respect Do from the Juice soundtrack as the number two song, it's a hype record. It's yeah. like a party record, and he got it out the way. But this is wartime. Yeah. That wasn't my favorite Kane record, and it's the second record you're doing after KRS started with Don't, 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 Don't. Yeah. No, no, he, he did um one of them. He did one of them joints like that, and I was like, But that's why I was saying, Doug, you were, you were describing their two styles. Uh -huh. One style is better suited to war. When you're going into a battle and you have to win over a crowd. And right. the other style is more of like a technical display. They weren't fighting the same fight. So what did you walk away with? <laughs> well, I'm a huge Kane fan since day one. So I got what I needed from it, which was I like the songs. I want to see him perform. He's still moving around. He looks good. KRS cannot touch Kane with the wordplay, yeah, the lyrical wordplay. And he can't mess with Kane with the smooth operator stuff. You stayed one way, KRS. That's great for hip-hop. <laughs> but Kane could do, I get the job done. He could oh do smooth operator. You never had that. And being a man of New York, right. you had to be fly too. And KRS, he said spark ism, but I never saw him smoke weed. Right. Smooth operator, he was fly. Hip-hop, right. you got to be fly. You have to be fly. That KRS one energy, the BDP energy. Oh, insane. No, when Karis was big, puffy, dapper, Dan Jacket, Jack of Spade, and it was incredible. Even edutainment, he didn't need the materialistic stuff. But I'm just saying, yeah. Kane was smooth operator, and KRS couldn't do that. 
what KRS-One is, is what he is, is what he's been, and he's never changed that, and he has stuck to that role. You are not coming to him with heels on and a dress. You're not coming into him suited <laughs> up, and, you know, you coming in there Gucci down to the socks. You ain't going there to see There will be no KRS dance routines. Like There's yeah. no dance routine. Nothing. It's going to no be pimping. hardcore. No, no pimp beat, stuff. Right. You may want to get some earplugs because the beats are going to be crazy. Did he inject right. steroids into the beats? What did he do? You know what I mean? And it's a whole Yo. other dimension. Yes. Yes. But Kane... Yes. Is a different dimension because there's levels to it. And that's one of the things that I used to teach him. I used to show Kane. I used to train Kane at my house. He learned performance right. from you. I noticed. Right. I used to take yeah. him to the house and I used to have him spend the night and I used to throw the video in and I'd be like, let me see the show. And I'd be like, why do you keep doing that? Tell me what's the purpose of that. And then after he would be like, well, because of this, I'm not thinking about it. Well, what you think? I said, why don't you try switching the mic from that hand to that one, this one hand. All right. And then I used to go to his show and instead of standing on the side of the stage, I'd be in the out. He'd be like, yo, you going to watch this for me? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going out in the crowd. You going in the crowd? I'm in the back of the crowd and I'm looking at the show because I'm looking at it as a full dimension. So I'm looking at it. And I'm like, why are you always going to the left side? I never see you go to the right side. Why do you stand there so much? And then I started giving him videos and things, and I used to do that. I used to do that for him. I did it for Public Enemy. I did it for G Dep. I did it for Puffy. I did it for Biggie. It's like a for group Biggie. Of yeah, I used to train Biggie. I used to train Biggie and Puffy so that they can work together because Puffy can be over the top. And I said, mm. you got to pull back and let Biggie shine. And then when he's tired, you coming up. And then I used to take Chuck and Flavor and make them gel because Flavor's like comic relief from all of this boom, boom, boom that Chuck is coming in. And then I used to say, you know, you got to utilize him more. And then I took the S1Ws and I made them move. I showed them how to move them. This is the part I'm trying to explain is that Battles are won by styles. See, you walked away feeling Kane, and you did too, because that's the kind of energy that you vibrate on. Now, unless Kane really did terrible, that would have made you say, well, KRS-One got it. But Kane didn't do that. He didn't miss a beat. Right. I don't have no winners. They both won. Love, love the Fat Boys. So they marketed the yeah. Fat Boys. I was a big fan. I don't know what came first, the movie Beat Street, because that's where I first saw you, or yeah. the Fat Boys' first record. Mm -hmm. But the way you handled the machine that they had, I'm known for the, you did your thing, not for the, right. and then you did how Buff, recipes Buff on the Fat Boys, you did his thing. Right. We said, oh, he did that. Oh, he said that. Like you addressed <laughs> it in a strong right. way without dissing. But in right. a strong enough way that we knew right. everything was a low-key battle just for your identity. Right. To me, that's how I looked at it. That's the word. That's the magic word you just said right there, identity. And I just want to interject to explain to you that that is what hip-hop was. What is your identity? And I always tell people, every superhero has a superpower. And that superpower identifies that superhero. 
when you grow up in hip hop, you had to create your own superpower. So there were four elements in hip hop. And the fifth element, I created the fifth element. I'm a little different than most artists because I created what I am. Wow. If you see somebody DJ, somebody started that. If you see somebody MC on the mic, DJ Hollywood was one of the guys that started that. And then he put on there, say ho. So when you hear in crowd participation, that was the element that he put into play. So you got Hollywood, you got the DJ, you got the break dancer, you got the graffiti artist. So this fifth element did not exist. So I created the fifth element, but not knowing I was creating it as I was going along. I used to play the trumpet in school. When I went to the school, my music teacher named Brother Lee said, hey, what instrument do you want to play? I said, I want the percussions and I want the drums. And he said, no, you're going to play the trumpet. Hmm. And I said, well, why you ask me if you're telling me? (laughs) He said, take the trumpet home. And if we get good on the trumpet, I'll let you play the drums and the percussions. Long story short, I took the trumpet home. One day they cut the music programs at the school. When they cut the program, I gave the trumpet back. Brother Lee was no longer there. So I'm walking down the street and I'm passing these mom and pop record shops with the speakers outside. I was always by myself most of the time. So I'm walking by and I'm hearing it was a Friday night. Everybody was breaking the high. And I'm hearing the bass line. So I'm walking by and I start doing the bass line. Then all of a sudden I'm hearing the hi-hat. Then I'm saying, okay, I'm going to put the hi So every day I would walk by and put something new in there. And then all of a sudden I'm going. And I'm going crazy now, right? So now I go to my man Barry B's house. Chill Will's in school with me. We go to Barry's house to practice. When we go in there, Barry cuts down the records because when the DJ's practicing, they're changing the records, we're making the tape. So I start doing... <laughs> and I start doing this in there. So his mother comes in there and you know how the project walls are, right? The rooms are like this. They back to back. Yeah. So his mother come in the room and say, yo, that was a nice beat y'all just played right there. So Barry said, that wasn't a beat. That was him. Hmm. And Barry said, yo, that's crazy what you be doing. He said, yo, you know what? You should do that outside at the jam and call it the human beatbox. I said, I'm not doing that. You're trying to make me look like a clown? I said, put the beat on, man. Let me finish around. He said, yo, I'm telling you, you should do that. That's crazy. So I went outside at the jam, in the projects, at the park. And he said, do it now, do it now. He cut the music down. Wow. He said, do it I said, yo, I'm going to do this thing called the beatbox. Tell me how y'all like this. And everybody ran up to the front. They said, ah! started going crazy. And that is how the beatbox started. Just like that. That is so amazing. Now, the question really is, would I have ever created it if I didn't play the trumpet? You see what I'm saying? And if the music program wasn't cut from the school, would I have still created it? Probably not. Hmm. And then in 1982, I performed out in Shirley, Long Island. And that's where I met Biz. And then I took Biz with me. And I gave Biz my number. And he started to come to my house every day. And I started to have him hang around. 
business to do that you bring him to your house once he's in he is not coming out he was going to the <laughs> store for my mother my grandmother i would walk into my house he would be there sitting on my couch like yo what happened what took you so long and then that's when i started to show him and he started to study me and he started to be around me and that's how he got into the beatbox and then he used to study with my djs and then that's how he started djing Wow. wow. Rest in peace, Biz Marky. This is an original memo to get fresh food, bro. Wow. <laughs> Doug, we could talk to you. We're going to have to do a part two, <laughs> yeah. a part three. You've always been a man of the people. You've always been for the people. When I was buying your records, I would hear the messages that you were putting in the records that the whole world was rocking to. And I said, man, he cares. In the middle of him rocking this mm -hmm. record and jamming, he cares about us and he cares about uplifting us and you understood the assignment as they say now right. and you understood what your purpose was and put you on a level in my eyes of the guys that wasn't doing rap music the Bob Marley's and the people like that had another mission right mm -hmm. it was in their heart to give us something to be yes. proud of and Man, your career and what you've done and how people are still saying, teach him how to Dougie, or people say, <laughs> the outfit is Dougie. I mean... You're an adjective. You're yeah. an adjective. Yeah. Your records remain, to this day, timeless, where records that were great at that right. time just represent the sound of that time. Your records represent the sound of that time, today, and tomorrow. Doug... Thank you, man. Thank you no, for today, yeah. man. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We didn't even get into it, ladies and gentlemen, people that's listening in the universe but out there. Taste. We it's just given you a taste. We There's have so to many come layers, back. Yep. Man, and I want to thank y'all for having oh, me on man. here. I want to just say this last piece. I came out with an album, which is a go-go album, and it's a tribute to Chuck Brown. It's called This One's for Chuck Brown. And I did it because as a creator of something, I feel creators don't always get acknowledged. And as much as you acknowledge me, I acknowledge you. I acknowledge y'all journey because I remember both of y'all journeys. And this guy, Chuck Brown, I was able to experience some things with that I feel were very important. And a platform like this that you're creating gives us the ability to acknowledge each other instead of waiting for somebody else right. to acknowledge us. And it's a mini doc wow. to go with it to show you why. I did this for Chuck Brown, the godfather of Gogo. I live for stuff like this. Yeah. You remain the king. I appreciate man. you, my brother. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Paul. Thank you, Dougie. On the next episode of The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop, we talk to Yara Shahidi. It's impactful to think about in the carrying forward of hip hop, how many black art traditions are being carried forward in it and seeing the way in which it continued to set the tone and in many ways been the anchor for so much of our other art. The question is, what's hip hop doing? And then the world kind of just shifts around it. From Spotify. The executive producers are Gina Delvec and Jason Rodriguez with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, 
and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. For Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Pawana. And associate producer is Serge Jabrija. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langa and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening. <laughs>